today we're beginning a two-week series where we're going to focus on what we're calling biblical generosity. What does it mean to approach giving and manage the resources each of us has received in a way that's consistent with what the Bible teaches? Um, I know that we have a lot of questions about the area of giving, and so I'm looking forward to getting into some of the, the practical stuff. But to kick it off, I want us to think about a, a question this morning. What is the most generous gift you've ever received? Now, if you're like me, being put on the spot with that kind of a question takes some time. I might need to go through and go, I don't, I don't know. Um, but just to get your kind of wheels turning, perhaps it was a financial gift that comes to mind right away that you received when you needed it most. Maybe you were surprised with a trip to some place. Perhaps it was a Christmas or a birthday present that you wanted but thought for sure you were not going to get. I wonder if anything comes to mind for you. Maybe it's not a thing at all. Maybe it was an experience of generosity. Maybe somebody gave up their time to come alongside you when you were going through a difficult season. And you knew they had things to do and places to be, but they stayed with you through that and you felt their generosity. Perhaps you were treated better than you deserved after something that you had done wrong or a hurt that you had caused. I have shared this story before, but when I was in middle school, I, at the church in Bozeman where I grew up, I punched a hole in the wall of the church. And I was angry, and something happened, and I punched this hole in the wall, and my dad was the worship pastor. So um, my mom was volunteering with kids ministry in a bunch of other areas, and so I tried really hard to, to not get caught. But they found the hole, they figured out it was me, and that night I got a call from our pastor, and he said, hi, Micah, and I mean, the pastor never called and asked for me, so I'm like, okay, and he said, hi, Micah, I want you to come into the church on Saturday. And I thought, okay, this is how Baptists do excommunication. He's going to, I'm going to fill out some paperwork and that's it. Um, so I was terrified and I was stressing out all up to that moment. But I got there on Saturday. My dad dropped me off. Um, and I went in and the pastor, I'll never forget how happy he looked. He greeted me warmly. He, he said, how was your week going? And he's like, what are, you, what's, what are you taking in school? And then he's like, what kind of hobbies? What are you involved in? I'm just like, what's going on? What's he setting me up for here? And at some point after he took a genuine interest in my week and in my life, he said, well, let's go take a look at that hole. Um, but the way he said it was like, we're, let's go play some games at the arcade. I was like, still, what is happening? And so we go look at this hole and he spent a couple hours showing me, training me how to patch holes in the drywall. And, and, and by the end, I felt like I had gotten some training for which I owed him. Um, and it was still to this day the most vivid experience of generosity that I can remember. Um, and really grace, right? Being treated in a way that you do not deserve. We can all probably think of some example or time or person where we were treated generously. But I have a second question. What's the most generous you've ever been towards someone else? We could go through the same examples. Maybe it was financially you saw a need and you helped meet that need. Maybe you showed up for someone or you gave them a gift. But this week, I had the opportunity to ponder a third question. What felt better, receiving the gift or being the one who is able to meet a need by offering the gift? In Acts chapter 20 in the New Testament in the Bible, Paul is saying goodbye to a lot of people that he had come to know and love, and he's going to Jerusalem, and he knows that he's not going to see them again. 
And it's a painful chapter, Acts chapter 20, where he recounts the trials and the difficulties that he had been through bringing the good news to these people. He calls it the gospel of the grace of God. Everything he went through and suffered so that they could hear this good news of God's undeserved generosity. But as he recounts all of the problems and kind of remembers the trials, rather than grumbling or saying, man, I deserved better or lamenting his his problem, he takes the opportunity to remember a critically important spiritual truth. And here it is. He says to these people in verse 35, in all these things that I've been through, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. That was his focus through his whole ministry. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, I think Paul, in these words and in the context of this chapter, is admitting to these people that for all of the ways that he had been shown generosity, nothing compared to the joy of seeing his life generously poured out for the good of others. And so if, if Jesus is right... If Paul is right, we should be able to say with them that those moments that we were able to give, to help, to encourage, to meet a need, are far more and more lasting, lastingly satisfying than that gift that we received. So as we talk about biblical generosity, we're going to get into some of the practical questions of of. What is the history of giving among God's people? How do we approach giving today? How do we make decisions? But I don't want us to lose this foundational perspective. Because sometimes giving is seen as this one-sided, sacrificial, I'm giving up all of this and hopefully they'll benefit from it. But rather, this is the way that God is designed to bless you. To cause you to flourish through generosity. It is more blessed to give than to receive. But even as we begin this conversation, I have to admit what some of you probably may be feeling. Talking about giving, especially in the church, can feel a little awkward. Have you ever felt that? As I sort of contemplated this week why that tends to be the case, I came up with four reasons that in my experience, giving can feel awkward. The first reason is when pastors are awkward, right? If a pastor stands up and is all like mumbly and weird about it, the people are going to be weird. They're going to be like, oh, I guess that's not something we're supposed to talk about, even though Jesus talks about it constantly, right? So I think as leaders, we set the tone for this conversation. Another reason definitely more serious and sobering is the fact that pastors, many pastors sadly, have leveraged their role for selfish gain. It's where we hear someone saying, you should give, and then we look at their lifestyle and it doesn't match what scripture says. Or we look at the way that they're leading and we say, but that's not what I see in the Bible. I think of Peter who who calls leaders not to pursue selfish gain, but to serve willingly. Not to domineer or lord authority over people or abuse that role, but to get down where people are at and set an example for how to live out the Christian life. And so, quite frankly, when we see leaders not doing that, we are reasonably skeptical when they say, hey, you should give. A third reason I think talking about money can be difficult, or giving rather, is when giving, as I've already done this morning, 
is automatically associated with money. You hear giving and you think, all right, when's the ask? What do they need? What's, where are we at with the budgets? As opposed to an entire life empowered by the spirit of God's generosity. Where we're invited into an adventure of seeing what God will do as he overflows through our lives. Well, the last reason is when we think of giving simply as something that is being asked of us. And we lose sight of the beauty of what God is offering to us. And one of the best examples of that I can think of in the Bible is Proverbs chapter 22, verse 9 says, A generous man will himself be blessed. And one of the points that I'm going to bring out next week is that generosity doesn't flow from surplus. We might think of, well, if I have a lot, then I can be generous with a lot. Surplus flows from generosity. When I choose to be generous, I experience more generosity, more blessing, according to Jesus, than even the person who received the gift. So that's where we're going to start our study this morning, is the foundation of generosity, the source of it, realizing it is not the practical needs that you may or may not be aware of. It's not, uh, you know, maybe a desire to be a better person. I should probably give some money somewhere. The foundation of generosity is an extravagantly generous God in whose image you are made. And think about that. You and I are fearfully and wonderfully, intricately designed in the image of the most joyfully generous being in existence. What does that mean for you and for me? Back in the beginning of the Bible, Speaking of the foundation of generosity, in the book of Genesis, we find the creation narrative where God creates the world. And, and we could find there God making a world that was practical, a, word that, a world that, that didn't waste resources, but it was just enough to work for our purposes, a world that got the job done. But when you look at our world today, and I'm thinking specifically of images that people have taken from different parts of the world. It is so far over the top beyond what's necessary. Beautiful places where it becomes abundantly clear that God is either wasteful with resources or he is generous and good in a way we can't comprehend. God is the one who filled the earth with birds and flowers and fish, and creatures of every kind. <laughs> Rivers, and mountains, and lakes, and food. And then you look up at the sky at night at the stars, and you think, how did this happen? The only answer that makes sense to me is a God who is extravagantly generous and good. And so guys, when we talk about giving, yes, we are going to address practical questions. How do I do this? Where should I or shouldn't I be using resources? But man, if we lose sight of this beautiful backdrop that makes generosity so worth our attention, none of those practical answers will matter. And so this perspective is something Paul maintained masterfully in his letters to the different churches because he wrote in most of his letters about giving. He, he talked about the needs that are around, the responsibility of God's people to help meet those needs, which we'll, again, look at a little more next week. But he always kept things in perspective. The motivation Paul provides, now, for example, one of those chapters is 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 
uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are some of the best, most just packed passages on giving and generosity. But the motivation he gives for, for being generous to help meet the needs in that chapter, he does not say, first of all, I'm the Apostle Paul, so you do what I say. Now, that might sound stupid to us, but actually, isn't that the culture of some churches and religions? I'm the leader, I say so, and there's this like fear and guilt, and there's an amount that's declared, and if you don't give that amount, you might not actually get to the level of heaven you want to be at. That's real, but it's also a lie. It's flat out wrong based on the Bible. That's slavery. That's not the freedom that Jesus talks about related to generosity and wants us to experience. So Paul doesn't say, you know, he doesn't manipulate people and say, well, I'm the pastor, I'm the, I'm the apostle, you better do it. Neither does he say, you should give because it's the right thing to do. <laughs> A lot of us are driven by duty. Well, it's because we've all, what we've always done. And I, and I think duty has its place. Behind it is a lot of, of, of truth and solid value. But Paul doesn't say that either. Instead, Paul directs our attention over and over to who God is. To what God has done for you and for me. And here's the clincher, the fact that God's generosity and the experience of his generosity increases toward every one of us when our generosity toward others increases. When the flow opens up and we are generous with others, we experience his provision more vividly in our lives. And again, we're going to get into all of this. But in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, he says, If you want a large crop, a large harvest you have to be willing to plant a large amount of seeds. Does everybody resonate with that? Does that sound like good science? Yeah, like, you can say yes, you can respond, yeah. Um, if you plant a couple seeds, you'll get a couple plants, right? And so Paul uses this metaphor in this chapter to say, hey, if you want to have a generous harvest, you need to sow generously, you need to plant generously. Uh, and he goes on in verse 8 of this chapter, and these verses will be up on the screen. For those who plant generously, God will generously provide all that you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As it is written, he, he's directing our attention to God, has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. There's no one more generous than him. For God is the one who supplies seed for the farmer and bread for food. In the same way, he will provide and multiply your resources and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, and here it is, to be generous in every way. Do you see the connection, how, how God's generosity is the foundation? Because again, Paul could have guilted them he could have pressured them. He could have said, well, we have bills to pay. They're not going to pay themselves. You know, you guys need to give. Instead, he reminds them and he reminds us of a God who is extravagantly generous. What he has done for us that he distributes freely. He provides for all that we need. And so the first foundational point this morning, there's just going to be two, and they're closely related. The first point when we talk about giving is that everything we have comes from God. Everything we have comes from God. Now, this might sound obvious, like one of those truths you take for granted. You're like, well, yeah, okay, Mike, I already know that. But, 
But I think in my experience, it's one of those things that's theoretical. Like we can, we can know it, we can believe it, we can say it. Yeah, everything comes from God. But do we feel what that really means? Everything you have, everything you are, is a gift from God. Do we, do, we, do we realize what that actually means? And so, man, I thought I would take some time to drill into some biblical examples of specific things God has given to each one of us generously. Be, be beneath the banner of everything, right? So we just go, everything, cool, thanks God. But let's, let's think about this, okay? Acts chapter 17 um, is the most obvious, says he gives life and breath to everything and he satisfies every need. I, I, it's kind of the banner over, over all of it, right? And, and so I love how he says he gives life. And again, we could, we could theoretically and sort of in an abstract way say, yeah, God is the author of life. But I really love he includes the word breath. Can you just like take a breath for a moment and exhale? That was a gift from God. You know, scientists can, can look at our hearts and our bodies and they can have some idea, even though it is really impartial, but we can have some idea of what's going on in us, but science can't explain a bit of why. Why is our heart beating? Why does your heart keep going like this? We have an answer. God. God sustains us because he's generous, because he's good, because he loves us, because he has purposes for your beating heart and your life. Everything we have, including the breath in our lungs, comes from God. But God isn't just sustaining us in some official creator capacity, like God is, you know, winding up the clock and it just kind of runs. He's gladly sustaining you today. Do you know that? James chapter 1 is an example of this where James says, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no change like shifting shadows. In other words, God's generosity towards you will never weaken. It'll never change. There's nothing you can do that can make him love you less or more. He is perfectly generous. And, and, and I love that the Bible, Jesus and the New Testament writers refer to God as the Father. Not just, well, God is sustaining and giving you life, and so that's, you know, where all of your life comes from. But the Father, that speaks to motive. That speaks to affection. He's glad to give gifts. David, in Psalm 31, expounds on this idea a little further when he says, my times are in your hands. That word time in, that, in the Hebrew is, is seasons, experiences, all of the things that take place in our lives. God is there in all of it. They're in his hands. He's in control. Solomon adds that even the number of our days is a gift from God. How long you're alive, it's all, every day is an extravagant, generous gift to you and me. But then I love that there are verses that drill into the substance of our days. Because again, we're still pretty up here. Yeah, I'm alive, right? My days, my breath, okay. But then we get into some of the detailed stuff. Like 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says to these believers, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not your own. <laughs> you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. 
Now, he, again, he's speaking to Christians, to believers here, but I think we could say every single one of us, your body is a gift from God. And in these bodies, we get to make plans, we get to eat food, we get to go on trips, we, we apply and get jobs, we form relationships, we make money. But Deuteronomy chapter 8, God speaks to his people and reminds them, the Lord is the one who gives you power to get wealth. So even our bodies where we think, well, this is mine now, and I get to go do the things that will get me my money, and God's like, man, all of it, all of it, the energy, the ability is all from God. Romans chapter 12 says, in his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. Isn't that a good verse? In his grace, undeserved, he didn't have to do it. He didn't owe it to any of us, but he has given us abilities to do certain things well. What things? I would say anything. Anything you do well, God has given you the gift to do that well. Exodus 31 is a great example. We meet a man named Bezalel. Now, I know that's not a popular name today or in the top 100 baby names, uh, but that's his name, nonetheless. And Bezalel, it says, God, uh, God says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God. But then listen to what happens because of his being filled with the Spirit of God. With ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. Now, when I read that this week, I thought, when you hear of someone who's filled with the Spirit of God, what do you envision that person doing? They're filled with the Spirit. I think, well, they're, they're, they're prophesying. They're evangelizing. They're teaching, right? All of these things that we think of as spiritual. But how many construction people we got in the house? How many masons? How many tilers? How many woodworkers? You don't have to raise your hand, but listen to what follows and the effect of the filling of the Spirit for Bezalel. God gave Bezalel his spirit, quote, to devise artistic designs. To work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. Guys, do you realize that what you are good at is a gift from God, and he delights in you being good at what you're good at? All of it is a gift from God. Amen? My wife and I have six kids. And so that is my front row seat to the ways God has generously given gifts. And if, if you've had kids, you know, it's just, it's a fun, crazy, adventurous ride. Seeing, though, how God has put things in them that over time come out. Um, and I just thought I'd share a few, like when my son Aaron um, skillfully teaches a wrestling move to his brothers, whether they want to learn it or not, Right. And then at the next meet, demonstrates it beautifully. I think of our son, Keenan, who can sit at the piano and figure out any song by ear. Or draw a picture that, unlike me, looks like the thing he's trying to draw. I think of our daughter, Annabelle, who builds this three-level, intricate Lego house from scratch, where everything is exactly where she wants it. And she goes through and explains all the levels to me. It's beautiful. Our son Maxton sketching and labeling over a hundred bird species. Or borrowing my phone to write and direct a film with his siblings. It's just an opportunity to boss them around, but it works. Right? 
Or when our daughter Nora demonstrates her latest gymnastics move or goes into a splits that would ruin me. And she's always like, Dad, it's easy. You just, you know, and I'm like, nope, nope, it's not easy. I'm not going to do that. Um, And finally, Tristan, cheerfully asking me for the 10th time in the day, Dad, is there anything I can do to help you? Guys, it's all such extravagance from God. And and I think we look past a lot of it. We're just like, oh yeah, whatever. But to, to stop and notice the ways God has generously given us so much. But the second point for our morning, not only has God provided everything, everything comes from God, but everything we have belongs to God. And that might sound similar, but it is very different. Not just that God has given us everything, but that we are responsible for what we do with what he's entrusted to each one of us. When I was a a young kid, my dad talked to my brothers and I, I have an older and a younger brother, about giving. And he suggested starting with a tithe, and we'll talk about that next week, what that is, but it just means a tenth of your income, everything you make give a dollar. If it's 10, give a dollar, et cetera, right? And I remember the first time after my dad had that talk with us, and I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. I got a $10 bill. And I remember this like feeling of resistance, like I am not going to give a dollar of this away. I, I have plans for that dollar. But my dad knew I was struggling with it. And I, I, I'll never forget something he said to me, Micah, you're not giving a dollar of your money to God. God just gave you 10 of his. And so for me in that moment as a young boy, I was like, oh my goodness, so I get to keep nine? I mean, it really changed my whole perspective of uh, I'm not giving anything to God. And so I think even when we ask questions surrounding this topic, how much do I give God? I know why we say that, but it can confuse the issue. Because whatever you decide to give, maybe you give time volunteering in a ministry, maybe you give some money to a, a, a ministry of, or a church, do you realize, though, that whatever you keep back, quote, for yourself, is still God's? All of it is God's. And David puts this quite succinctly in Psalm 24, verse 1. He says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It all belongs to him. And so true generosity, and I would say worship, starts with that realization. And I think it is what motivated Paul to say things like, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, which are not particularly religious activities as we would think about them, whether you eat or drink, or I I think Paul would or could add on hike or go to coffee with a friend or read a book, whatever you do, what does he say? Anybody? Anybody? Do it all to the glory of God. Why? Because it's all his. And the best picture of this, I think, in the Bible, of how do we live this out practically, is the role of a steward. And if you've never heard of that, it's okay. It's not a word we use much in our uh, culture today, except maybe like a stewardess, like on an airplane. I don't know if that's the same thing. But a better word, I think, in our times is manager. And what that basically means is someone who is put in charge of and given authority to oversee somebody else's property. It's it's a manager, an an overseer. And biblically, one of the best examples of this is is Joseph. If you know the story of Joseph, um, if you don't, 
Genesis 39 is where you can read about this, this story. But he's sold as a slave by his brothers who were jealous of him. They got rid of him. They sold him to the Egyptians, and he went into slavery as a young boy. But over the years, the captain of the guard, by the name of Potiphar, noticed Joseph, how hardworking he was, how faithful he was with what he had been given. And so, verse 4 of that chapter says, Joseph found favor in his sight, so Potiphar made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. I share this verse, guys, because I think this is a beautiful picture of every one of our lives. A God who had enough favor, um, who saw something beautiful. And it says in, in Psalm 8, he crowned us with glory and honor. He gave us dominion. He said, you rule my creation. But I think that's the key, my creation. Because if someone had come to Joseph and said, man, Joseph, oh, you've done so well for yourself. Look at all that you have. What would he say? It's not mine. I'm simply an overseer, I'm simply a manager, a steward of all of my master's possessions. And so that is kind of the point, friends, that we have a responsibility as people and especially as Christians to manage what's been entrusted to us. And here's the key, according to the priorities and the values of our master. And you may be like, okay, well, how do I know what that is? We could spend many, many weeks talking about that, and I think answers to that question come out in our messages every week, but the best thing I can tell you is God's Word is the very best resource for you to regularly be saturated with the values and the priorities of God. That as you read the, 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 the Gospels, for example, of Jesus going around healing, hurting people, going to marginalized people, being accused of spending his time with sinners, you start to pick up on what God values. And you start to think about, what do I have? What resources have I been given? How could I also be going after people that Jesus goes after? That's just one example. But next week, as I said, we're going to get into some of the practical questions into God's word and look at what it says about giving, generosity. But I do not want us to miss this foundational perspective that everything you have is from God. Everything you have belongs to God. And so the question that I want to end with to kind of provoke our thinking into the next step, the practical, is this. How do we, how do you, leverage your temporary resources for God's eternal purposes? What is it that he's given to you that isn't going to last forever, that could be maximized for things that will last forever. Jesus tells a story in John uh, Luke 16 to drive this point home, and it is, in my opinion, one of the most bizarre stories in the New Testament. Um, and you'll see why in a second. And I just wanted to end with this story. Um, Luke 16 talks about this rich man. He's, he's the, the master of, of a property, of a household, and he has a manager over his household. And he finds out one day, one way or another, that this manager has been mismanaging the property. And we don't know what that means, whether he was stealing money or whatever, but it's bad enough to where the master calls in the manager and sits him down and says, you're going to pack up your things. You're done. And he gives him some time. We don't know how much, but maybe let's say a week he's got some time, but he's going to be done. And this manager goes into panic mode. 
Because he's like, I'm too old to dig ditches. I'm too proud to beg. Uh, I can't start over at this point. Some of you might feel that way right now, right? Um, And so he begins to think, what can I do to set myself up for the future? I want to read you these verses. In Luke 16, verse 4, he says, I have decided what to do. So when I lose my job, people will receive me into their houses. So he invited each person who owed money to his employer, and he asked the first one, how much do you owe? The man said, I owe 800 gallons of olive oil. So the manager said, take the bill and quickly change it to 400 gallons. Now, how's that person feeling who just had their debt cut in half? Probably pretty good about that manager, right? Like, what is going on here? He asked the next man, and how much do you owe? I owe a thousand bushels of wheat, he said. Here, the manager said, take the bill and change it to 800 bushels. Now, at this point, we're probably thinking, okay, this manager is not only going to get fired, he's going to get sued. This is all bad. And Jesus is about to say, don't do that. But there's a really surprising turn of events here in verse 8. Sort of a shocking response from the manager. It says, The master, rather, it says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, I would love to have been there for that hypothetical conversation. Like, hey, you really messed me up bad, and you've been a terrible manager, but great job (laughs) on your shrewdness. I mean, I'm not even mad, right? That's amazing. So, there's something happening there. I don't know if he lost the job. Maybe he got promoted at this point. But the, the story stops, thankfully, because Jesus makes a point, And that's when you're reading a parable. It's really important that you not get lost in the weeds. Um, there's always a point. And here's Jesus' point in verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth that's, that's going away to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, I want to be super clear about this, and we can say this. Jesus is not commending dishonesty. He's commending shrewdness. He's commending cleverness and and, and thoughtfulness and creativity because we often approach our lives the way the manager approached his job before he got his notice. I'm going to be in this gig forever. And so really all I need to do is just have fun. I'm going to make money, I'm going to get myself a house, I'm going to find ways to be entertained. In themselves, those are not bad things, but we, we, we forget that this is going to end. And so when that manager got the notice that, hey, his job was coming to an end, his wheels started turning, and he started thinking strategically. Hey, this is going to end. I can't just cling on to this anymore. I have to think about what's after. And Jesus is like, do that. Live that way with your temporary resources and opportunities. And it could be money. It could be friends, as he says. How are you approaching that friendship in a way that could make a lasting, eternal impact? You know, one of my favorite parts about this story, and it's actually funny to me, is as soon as Jesus ends the story in verse 14, uh, it says, the Pharisees, these were the religious leaders of the day who really didn't like Jesus because he was disrupting the status quo and making them look bad and a bunch of stuff. But the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they scoffed at him. Translation, Jesus hit a nerve. 
I think Jesus told the story maybe mostly for them. I don't know. Um, but what is fascinating is these religious leaders were actually doing the opposite of what Jesus' story illustrates and tells us to do. They were leveraging long-term principles for short-term gain. What I mean by that is they had the facade of righteousness and holiness and purity, but it was a facade. Uh, Jesus at one point called them whitewashed tombs, rotting and dead, but they cover it up really nicely, don't they? And so they were using and abusing the people with this image of righteousness and holiness and all of the eternal principles, but they were leveraging those things for their short-term gain. And Jesus is saying, I want you to do the opposite of what these leaders are doing. I want you to look at your temporary resources and think about how you can leverage what's already going to go away for what will never go away. Does that make sense? I want to repeat this question from earlier. How do we leverage our temporary resources for God's eternal purposes? How can you invest your time your abilities, your relationships, your job, which maybe you are just hating right now, and you're like, I am counting the days until I'm out of this job. What if God has a purpose for your time in this job? What if you thought of it that way? Next week, we're going to get into some practical questions, but I just want to say the answer to this question, how do I, how do I maximize these resources, isn't going to come from me. It's not going to come from a book. Yes, those are great resources and God can use them, but I think it's going to come first and foremost when we bring ourselves to God. And when we say to God, even today, you say to God, God, I just recognize and agree everything comes from you. Thank you for things that I have been taking for granted. God, I know that everything comes from you and it belongs to you. God, I want to know how to manage the resources that you provided with me in a way that is honoring to you and makes lasting impact. If you do that, I promise you, he will speak to you. He will give you creative ideas you've never had before, if you're willing to do that. Well, um, as our worship team comes, we're going to close with a time of, of communion and you know, I asked that question in the beginning, what's the most generous gift you've ever received? And we could all share examples of friends or, or, or things or experiences or whatever. But as I was thinking about that question, it hit me later in the week that I can confidently say that for every one of us, there's ultimately one answer. We have a God who made us, who sent his son into the world to redeem us from our mess who entered the brokenness to pay the price for our sins so that we could be forgiven and brought back to God and have life forever together with him. Is there any gift better than that? The answer is no. And Paul articulates this in that same letter where he talks about the need for being generous. And he's saying to the church, give generously. There's needs but again and again, as I said earlier, he points to Jesus as the motivation. And he said this in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. 
We have never been treated more generously and we will never be treated more generously than God has already treated us through Jesus at the cross. And that is what we remember in communion, that Jesus gave everything so that we could get everything. Generosity is not about funding a cause or giving some money. It's a demonstration of the gospel. It's recognizing how generously I have been treated in light of my terrible sin. How lavishly God has loved me. And out of that realization, that well overflows in generosity to others who are as desperate as me. It's the gospel. 